This morning I'm, I'm pleased to be uh, talking about freedom. Partly, it's the 4th of July coming up, but I, I would probably be talking about freedom anyway, or if I was in another country. Uh, but, I, but, but on the other hand, I do want to really honor the best of the tradition that comes from the American Revolution and from the um, kind of the, the noble intentions to create a, um, a nation or a country with freedom for all. We know the shadow aspects very well, probably, of this country and this culture, but I think on the 4th of July it's very helpful to to reflect on the, really, the beautiful dimensions of the original intentions. And I, I thought I would read um, one or two passages. Um, you know, for me, one of the persons who brings forth this, uh, the, the nobility of the original intentions is Martin Luther King, Jr. And he said in 1961, I wanted to read from what he said, and, and, and the way that it really also, it, it's a way of pointing towards freedom. In the real sense, America is essentially a dream, a dream as yet unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. The substances of this dream is expressed in the sublime words words lifted to cosmic proportion, and then he quotes the Declaration of Independence from the uh, 4th of July. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall, shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And uh, I was also thinking of the... Um, Statue of Liberty in New York. Originally, the full name of the Statue of Liberty was Liberty, or Freedom, Enlightening the World. That's the name of the Statue of Liberty. It's very, I also think of the, the Buddhist uh, goddess, Kuan Yin, she who hears the cries of the world. You know, and the, there's a poem, some of you may have visited the uh, Statue of Liberty, there's a poem there by Emma Lazarus, which goes like this. Some of you probably know this from school or from visiting. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So this all points to some of the beauty, the beautiful intentions you know, that are, again, as King says, as yet unfulfilled. So, um, freedom, you know, in recent Western culture is the highest goal, and it's also clearly the highest goal of our contemplative practice, of our meditation. Uh, And in, in Western as well as Asian traditions, there is more of a sense of inner freedom uh, even in the Western traditions, there's the famous phrase, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And in recent Western traditions, there's been more of a focus on how outer conditions can be oppressive. You know, and in fact, many people have pointed out that the understanding that society can be changed to be less oppressive is a very recent invention. That's, n- that's not been the predominant understanding for most of the period of time. Um, And what I want to explore, I think over the next few weeks, is freedom. 
And today I want especially to focus on the sense more of the inner freedom, which is the focus of our practice. And in some future weeks, I want to talk about how that inner freedom gets connected with the effort to bring freedom into the world in more outer ways. And I'm partly responding to a request. The last time I asked everyone, what should we explore? And I think it was probably in the wake of a number of major issues in the world. I think it was right after the killing of Osama bin Laden, a few not long after the uh, nuclear disaster in Japan and so forth. And people wanted to say, how can I bring my practice in relationship to these world events? How do I make that connection? Do I just cultivate my private garden, so to speak? Or do I connect more largely? So I wanted in part to respond to that. And I think that this connection of inner and outer freedom is actually central to all of our lives. And we don't know how to do it so well. It's something that's really developing. <clears throat> There's a beautiful passage from the work of the uh, poet uh, Gary Snyder, who lives in um, the Nevada City area and used to teach at UC Davis. And a uh, very powerful passage, sort of uh, prophetic, written in 1961, long time ago, about this connection of the of inner and outer freedom. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be givens of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. He's referring there to um, Asian forms of institutional Buddhism. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. Wisdom or prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community of all beings. So that's pointing to that unity. Um, Today I want especially to look at the sense of inner freedom. And I would say, and this is really the center of the meditation (coughs) practice, is that we find we basically find freedom through awareness. And that awareness can bring freedom in any conditions, actually, even in extreme conditions. We know the stories of Tibetan great practitioners who have spent 20 years in Chinese prisons being tortured and come out of them intact with their practice strong. That may seem way beyond what we would be capable of, but that's a tribute to freedom in any conditions and the remarkable stories that one can read of, of of those beings. And I want to look especially at how we cultivate freedom through awareness so that that freedom ultimately can bring, uh, can be there no matter what the outer conditions, when it's most highly developed. And then uh, I think next time I want to make the connection with how do we then work to develop freedom when conditions are not as they might be, or are hard, or are oppressive. You know, because I think the, the point really is for the most developed, 
practitioners, in a sense, the conditions don't matter. And it's remarkable to spend time with Tibetan practitioners who've lost everything, and who've lost their country, who have been in prison. It's not just Tibetans. You know, I have a good friend, a Vietnamese monk, who was uh, also uh, tortured in prison by the uh, communists in northern, you know, in, um, in Vietnam and have kept their awareness, their compassion intact. It's remarkable to point to that. But we also know that pain and difficulty um, can unbalance the mind and heart. And so partly we may want to respond out of compassion to difficult social situations or family situations or community situations, in part because we know that difficult conditions, oppression, situations of polarization or hatred or anger can lead to tremendous suffering, can unbalance us. Even if we were, perhaps if we were the greatest of yogis, that wouldn't happen in the same way. But who is? You know, so out of compassion, it's important to respond to, to the state of the world. You know, if, um, if our world was upset by social changes, you know, imagine that'd be like, let's suppose you were Jewish in Europe in 1941. Your world would have been totally upset, or if, or if you were in a place where there was war. You know, we don't know what the way it'll be in five or 10 or 20 years with, with uh, difficult situations. So, and we have difficult situations now. So this imperative of practice, I think, is both inward and outward, and it's, it's very, very, it's very important. So today I want to talk about this aspect of finding freedom in awareness. And point to this, I think, in two ways. One is through what I would call aware, uh, developing awareness in the, in the context of ordinary mind, ordinary experience. And the second aspect of freedom is developing freedom in the context of what we might call extraordinary mind. So that's my focus today. So first, and I'll spend probably most of the time on ordinary mind, ordinary experience. That's mostly where we hang out. And in a way, the the sense of freedom in awareness uh, is really an unpacking, uh, especially of the third truth, uh, of the four truths of the Buddha. The first truth being, the first and second truth being the truth that there is suffering, the third and, and, and looking at the roots of suffering, and the third and fourth truth being that there is freedom and looking at the roots of freedom. That's what, this is the central teaching that we often uh, come back to, that teaching of, of the four truths. And I think in a way, with ordinary mind, we work with all four truths. And with extraordinary mind, we particularly hone in on the third. (laughs) So I'll come back to that. So, and it also really points to maybe, uh, I think the four truths can be understood in an interesting way, that they point to two main ways that we practice, or two main ways that we find ourselves practicing. The first and second truth point to the ways that we can work with the pain and suffering of our lives and, and, and can find a workable situation. And in fact, they can point to the way that when we start bringing awareness to challenging areas, we find freedom. There's a kind of freedom from being aware of what's happening. When there's enough awareness, we ultimately have the freedom 
not to follow our bad habits. And so the freedom of ordinary mind, if I could say it like this, is the freedom through awareness to be aware of our conditioning and not compulsively follow it. That's it. And that's why we practice. That's why we develop mindfulness. That's why we come here. That's why we do retreats, because we want to strengthen awareness. We want to strengthen mindfulness. Without mindfulness or awareness, our conditioning, some of which is helpful, some of which is not, just keeps on going. Our habits keep on going, for better or worse. Our patterns keep on going, whatever wounds we have from childhood or from our lives, to the extent that we're not aware of how they're impacting us, they will keep us acting in certain ways if we don't have awareness. So awareness creates the space in which we can actually say, do I really want to go there? I'm really feeling angry towards my friend. I'm noticing nasty thoughts developing in my mind. Do I really want to express them? Do I really want to follow them? And it's that capacity of awareness to create space around our patterns, around our thoughts, around our emotions, so that we actually have some choice or freedom. That's what, why we sit. You know, that's why we watch our patterns over and over again, so that we have some knowledge and I'm in a situation and I've seen a certain pattern a hundred times and I'm in a little higher stress situation. Someone has said something nasty to me and I notice how when someone says, when I don't feel understood, I react. And some of us may react by withdrawing, others may react by um, saying something defensively to the other person. And let's say I've studied that a hundred times I've noticed it and it comes up and with awareness I know, okay, you know, to paraphrase Jimmy Carter, I guess it was Ronald Reagan, there I go again. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But it did, it came, people know what I'm referring to, it's the 1980 presidential debates, right? So, which I didn't see, but I read about. I don't know where I was at that time. in any case, we, we notice, there, there I go again. There is my tendency. We have awareness of it. It creates space. I don't, and I say, do I want to go there? I've gone there a thousand times in the past. Do I really want to keep repeating that? And we ultimately say, no, my practice is about the negative patterns stop here because of awareness. And so that's... Awareness is directly responsible for freedom. It's the freedom not to be compulsively bound by what's been happening in the past. And in particular, it's the capacity not to be driven by uh, what my reactions to what's either painful or pleasant. And this is really what the first two truths are getting at. The first, first truth is that there is suffering. And the second truth is that the cause of suffering is craving. And that's how it's expressed in that. And, you know, there's another expression which I find in some ways even more accessible, which I, I like to teach a lot, which is the teaching of the two arrows, uh, which I love. I've, and then you've heard it um, more than once. <laughs> but... Uh, maybe you'll hear it differently today. And maybe I'll say it a little differently. Because it's actually uh, a way of talking about the two truths also. In which I think the distinction between pain and suffering is clearer. And it's a really, really crucial. Because uh, in English we use the words um, synonymously very often. But the sense of this teaching is that they're distinct. And even the Buddha, you read the text, and it sound, the distinction is not always made. Sometimes pain seems to be synonymous with suffering. But we'll see that the problem is not pain, but the problem is what we do with pain, and particularly the reaction that we call suffering. 
So that teaching, the Buddha uh, asks, how how is a how is a uh, non-practitioner different from a practitioner? They both experience pain. They both experience the unpleasant. You know, physical uh, discomfort, physical pain can be there, of course, for all of us. Um, emotional pain can be there. Injustice can be there. Unfairness in our lives. We all have a certain amount of that. And the Buddha says that's given. We can call that pain. But we also often react to the pain. And the Buddha said that we're all, that the experience of pain is like being shot by an arrow. And he calls that the first arrow. Everyone is shot by the first arrow. Non-practitioners thinking that their reactions will help the original pain shoot a second arrow. We might say at themselves and others as if that would help with the pain. So when we're physically in pain, we often get tight, we tense. We create um, tension in the body, which over time can do way, way more damage than the original stimulus. And one of the great benefits of meditation is that it can teach people just to be with the original pain and not to react so much in the body with tension and contraction, which for many, many people with pain, it's the contraction and the tension, not even mentioning the mental tension or mental reactions, which is many, many times greater than the original sensation in the body. So bringing meditation to people with chronic pain has been one of the big breakthrough areas in the application of meditation to the medical field. And so with um, emotional pain, very, very similar. We, and I think we know that shooting of the second arrow probably way, way more clearly, probably in terms of emotional pain. We know I have something really um, hard happens to me, something at work, I'm treated unfairly, I get a bad job review, you know, where I have a difficult meeting with someone close to me and there's some emotional pain there and then my mind and my emotions go off for the next week, right? And that's the second arrow. Just as the second arrow is the contraction and the tension, the second arrow is the, um, you know, blaming of the other, the blaming of self, the brooding, the going off continually. In some ways, perhaps because we can't really be with the original difficult experience or emotions. We can't really be with that. And the same thing can be true in the cases, a case of injustice or lack of fairness. We can have reactions where maybe we want to hurt the person who is unjust. You know, revenge. Or keeping the cycles of injustice going. Or of violence going. Violence has been done to me. I once read a study of youth violence and the greatest single correlation with youth violence was that the youth had had violence done to him or her. Cycles. The second arrow tends to be cyclical. I have pain, I create more pain. I reproduce that. And and in a way, what the approach of meditation, I think it's also the approach of nonviolence is to say, is that the cycles of reaction stop right now, stop with me as best I can. Whether they've been coming from the past for 10 generations or whether they've been coming in my life thousands of times, my practice says I stop shooting the second arrow. And that distinction is helpful because the first arrow, pain, we don't get rid of pain, but we, get, we have potentially the power to end suffering. And so that distinction is quite important, important to bear in mind because in our language we use them both. And so we might say at the level of ordinary mind, our everyday experience, we cultivate mindfulness. We cultivate loving kindness. We cultivate sometimes the capacity in loving kindness or in other ways to be centered enough to be with what's difficult. 
It's interesting that the teaching of the two arrows, I think, is another version of the four truths, but the teaching of the two arrows focuses on our reactions to the unpleasant, where the teaching of the four truths focuses on our reactions to the pleasant, that is, our grasping or craving. Interesting, isn't it? What's very interesting that the teaching of the four truths focuses the problem, I think they're both focusing on what we call reactivity. In other words, the tendency of the mind to be unbalanced by either pain or pleasure. And when there's pain, to want to get rid of it, push it away, react, shoot the second arrow. But when the, and that's the teaching of the two arrows, the teaching of the four truths is that the root of suffering is that reactivity in which we grasp onto things. They're mirror images of each other. And I think the, the, actually the full unpacking of the second truth and the teaching of the four truths is that the root of suffering isn't so much only grasping, but it's any reactivity in the mind. It's reactivity, in other words. Reactivity meaning the compulsive tendency to push away the unpleasant or to grab hold of the pleasant. And it's just expressed a little differently in the different teachings. But I think the true teaching is that it's the reactivity, it's the unbalanced quality that we tend to have with uh, the unpleasant or the pleasant. And so we find freedom in awareness by being aware of all of this. You know, we first start cultivating awareness where there isn't particularly a lot of pain or pleasure. We take, we work with the breath. We work in a neutral way with the breath and we cultivate awareness. We cultivate the ability to be present where our minds formerly were automatic or just caught lost in thought. You know, and so we first need these protected environments like here, like a retreat, to cultivate awareness, mindfulness. And that is necessary to be able to be present increasingly with situations where there are tendencies to reactivity. So we first start practicing in protected environments where we're not necessarily dealing with a lot of stuff. That's why retreats are beautiful, because we can really practice this often free, at least at times, from much happening, much that we have to deal with, not the everyday activities. And so we strengthen, maybe, maybe like a training, like an athlete training, we strengthen the capacity of awareness. And without those special environments, we wouldn't be able to develop it so much without the protected environment of sitting quietly at home for half an hour or coming here or being on retreat, it'd be hard to have our our mindfulness and our awareness get stronger. But as we develop that more, and it's really not so much we develop that first and then we apply it to our problems because our issues and our problems aren't left with the shoes outside. <laughs> you know, they're, they follow us in, right? You may have thought you come to Spirit Rock, and I don't know if anyone really thinks this, but that there's only peace and understanding and wisdom. I, I thought this when I first started meditation. I thought I would just start meditating. It would just be peace, bliss, and understanding. And um, I did experience that, but, but there was also, you know, There was also other parts of my life where there was pain or confusion. And so we cultivate awareness in these protected environments. And then gradually we start bringing it out. Sometimes, you know, of course in our meditation some, we bring it out to the places where we're reactive, where we're tending to shoot the second arrow, where we're creating conditions for suffering. And we have the space through awareness not to compulsively go down the road we've always gone. You know, partly we start to see what the patterns are. We don't know a lot of them at first, right? We start to see, oh, this is what anger is. Here's the way my mind works. Oh, here is this trigger. Oh, here's what I do when I'm not listened to. Oh, 
Here's the way my anger works. Oh, here's the way my fear works. We study all of that. We study that. And we have to study that a lot to really know the patterns. As we know the patterns more, and that, this can take a long time, as you know, as we study the patterns more and know them, maybe first we start seeing the patterns in the protected environments. I'm sitting and I'm watching my anger and I'm watching my mind, let's say I've had, had a difficult conversation with my partner and I notice my mind starting to blame him or her. And then in the meditation, I ask, I have awareness of it and I say, do I really want to keep on repeating that blaming as I'm sitting here over and over again? That's the space of freedom. And we might say, no, 233 times is enough. <laughs> right? And or six times is enough. Right? And then we maybe we cultivate that in the protected environments and then we develop the capacity to bring that out into everyday life and everyday flow. And we've done enough, enough work. I'm triggered in the moment. I wasn't even thinking about meditation or mindfulness. I'm triggered in the moment. And something in me says, I'm doing it again. Let me notice it. Let me be aware. And that's the space of freedom. And I create choice. I create the space of freedom which allows choice and not following the old patterns. And the old patterns can be um, shooting the second arrow after something painful, but it also can be imagining that I can grab hold of something pleasant and that will bring happiness. We look at both kinds of patterns and we notice them and it's awareness which brings the freedom. That's in a very everyday basis. So that's what I was calling ordinary mind. And I don't really mean to deprecate it at all, but it's the familiar everyday mind. This is, this is how much of our practice goes. We practice in this way. We see our patterns more clearly. We, we develop awareness. We begin to tune in to that third truth that there can be freedom beyond suffering. That suffering doesn't have to hold us. And this is really a doorway into what I am calling the extraordinary mind. And that the freedom that's taught by the Buddha and by many spiritual traditions points to a quality of awareness that I think truly is extraordinary that is a kind of vast awareness in a sense beyond self, beyond the usual way of organizing the world that I believe is the deepest kind of freedom. And that's pointed to by the tradition. That's pointed to when the Buddha talks about Nibbana or Nirvana. We can interpret this as pointing to a kind of awareness which I think we all have experienced at moments, in which awareness becomes vast, in which it becomes not held by the ordinary mind of dualism. We could say that this is the mind of love, of a vast love or a vast awareness or a vast wisdom. I thought I'd read some passages about, um, about this quality. In the text, this deepest freedom is typically talked about negatively. It's talked about as the absence, we could say as the absence of reactivity, the absence of greed, hatred, or delusion. Sometimes it's called the unconditioned. And so it's primarily described negatively. It's not actually, in the text, it's not described actually in terms of awareness very much. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's described that way. And it's that quality of the deepest awareness is taken as something that is always accessible to us. That nirvana or this deep freedom is something that's taken to be available every moment. This is also the teaching that we might get in Zen, 
or in many of the Tibetan traditions. There's a passage which I think I've given here once, which I love, um, from the Tibetan tradition, 16th century uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal, one of the great uh, teachers and writers on um, one of the Tibetan traditions called Mahamudra. And it's a line which I use a lot in my own meditation, which I, I gave um, after, the, after I was on retreat for a month in, in March. And I say it to myself many times a day because it invokes this quality of awareness. It goes like this. Think, it's, let this influence your present awareness. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. So feel free to repeat that 20 times a day. It's, you want me to repeat it <laughs> once, once more, maybe at the end also. Um, open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame. Lucid, like a crystal. Can you feel that sense of freedom? Just that are invoked by those words? Kind of just opens up. Oh, not, it's, it's that quality of not <coughs> holding anywhere, but resting almost in a kind of, of a pure awareness. You know, sometimes that phrase is used. In some traditions, that's used. We find, I'll just maybe read a few passages invoking that, because this is also, I think, the deeper aim of the practice. And to some extent, the distinction between ordinary mind and extraordinary mind is artificial. But we practice with the ordinary mind and develop that sense of awareness, and it actually is a doorway to the more extraordinary awareness. You know, in in Zen, it's sometimes said there's ordinary enlightenment and, or, or everyday enlightenment and then a more profound enlightenment. And they're related. It's like one is the doorway to the other. The characteristic of this deeper awareness is that it's actually a kind of resting in awareness where the sense of self is not there and even the sense of knower and known is not there anymore. In, in one way of using language, it's called a non-dual way of being, where, the, where there actually aren't even objects formed. There's just awareness present with freedom that in a sense goes beyond time and goes beyond self and goes beyond the ordinary uh, construction of the world. It's something that we can train in. We can train in this kind of awareness. I think the, the training can follow that training in ordinary freedom and awareness. So here, I'll read a few passages and I think I'll open this up. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. This is the Buddha speaking, by the way. There are both long and short, small and great, far, fair and foul. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. So we, we might say it's beyond concepts. It's a kind of awareness in which the conceptual mind, which we can link with the ordinary mind, is no longer functioning in the usual way. It's available to be used, but it, that's why I call it an extraordinary kind of mind, or we could say a very subtle kind of mind. It's beyond the ordinary conceptual mind, and yet there's still awareness, and there, and there is a kind of the ability to rest there 
And actually in all of the traditions, it's taken that this deep, vast awareness is a doorway, really, or is an expression of our deeper nature. And it's connected with qualities of love, of wisdom, of luminosity in the mind, of a kind of the shining quality that's invoked in that um, passage that that I read. Another text from the Thai forest tradition invoking that quality of awareness. This is from Achan Mahabua, who is uh, still alive in his 90s, one of the great teachers of Thailand. This text is available online, I think. It's called Straight from the Heart. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in in of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. The pure mind is what I'm calling this vast awareness. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. Do you hear that quality of that deep awareness? Whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. But to try to protect it is tantamount to protecting unawareness because unawareness is subtle. It's there in the mind. To be protective of the mind is tantamount to being protective of unawareness. And so he invokes that quality of this awareness. This is from the uh, Tibetan tradition from the uh, 18th century. This is a text called Flight of the Garuda by Shabkar. The Flight of the Garuda is, it's a kind of a mythical bird that, and he used that to mean that if you want to go to uh, awakening quickly, you should take a Garuda. We would probably say, if you want to go somewhere quickly, take an airline. But in the Tibetan tradition, you would take a Garuda. So it's the Flight of the Garuda. Anyway, this, I'll just read, um, um, listen, listen for that same quality of awareness, because it's very strong here. Mind, like empty space, has no concreteness. To see whether or not this is so, my fortunate children, look directly at your mind in the matter of not watching anything. Let go completely, and then you will know. It is certain that without being just an empty and black nothingness, The self-aware wisdom is surely primordially knowing. The self-existing natural knowing is like the sun. To see whether or not this is so, look directly at your mind and let go completely, then you will know. It is certain that thoughts and reflections are intangible. Their movements are uncertain as the wind in the sky. To see whether or not this is so, look directly at your mind and let go completely. This awareness, freed from inside and outside, is open like the sky. (laughs) There we go. It's open like the sky. It is penetrating wakefulness, free from limitations and partiality. Within the vast and open space of this all-embracing mind, all phenomena manifest like rainbows in the sky. And so, there's also that resting in that kind of freedom as well. There's this, this is, a, in, in my understanding, this is a deeper freedom, which is pointed to, this may be that freedom, if someone can rest in that quality of awareness, that may be stronger than torture, stronger than any conditions. And so that can be something we aspire towards, to touch. And again, I think we, if we would take more time with that, we would see that we have touched that in some ways, maybe just for a moment. And the practice really is, to develop in what I was calling ordinary mind, to develop that quality of, aw- of awareness that brings freedom with our patterns, with our reactions, know them very well, find more freedom, keep developing, and then keep going. 
we stabilize in that ordinary mind, the freedom of ordinary mind. And when we stabilize there, then we can start opening up to extraordinary mind, which brings a yet deeper freedom and is something that we can keep practicing in and that can get stabilized more and more until that's who we know ourselves to be. So that's the horizon of our practice. And we can go there and the starting point is developing awareness in a very simple way. But that awareness can deepen and deepen and deepen. And it's good to have that larger sense that we're not doing something that's small in some way. It can be quite vast and powerful and beautiful, but that the steps that we're taking to be aware just of the ordinary mind complaining is going in that direction. Let's just sit for a few moments and we can talk some together. We have some time if there are any uh, questions or reflections of any kind. Uh, please. Um, I'm interested in the question of anger as a driver. Yeah. Um, in some cases, that might be viewed uh, as a catapult out of a situation, for instance, abuse or um, depression. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how, if you go deeper you hopefully get wisdom yeah um but is that going to be enough what i'm what i'm interested in is taking heat out of the situation so that if you need a catapult you don't necessarily get the same kind of thing from wisdom i don't think or can you, can you yeah so it's a question of um how do we work with anger anger can often be um driving energy to, let's say, um, end, a, end a difficult situation or help us to resolve a difficult situation, whether it's interpersonal, we could also say social, clearly. Social dimension is, social movements often fueled by tremendous anger. Uh, whether that's wise or not, we can come back to. But um, um, And then it would seem that there's a certain amount of energy, or we might you use the word heat, I think, a certain amount of energy or heat with anger, and wisdom seems a little more cool. Is that still going to provide energy? Something, something that getting at your question. Well, I have a long response in my book. <laughs> I have about 15 or 20 pages on anger because the book is on, you know, respond, you know, how do we bring our practice into social service and social change? And the social change anger is a, such a large force that it felt important to develop a longer response. So, uh, but I think you're, you're getting at interesting question. Um, if I would be really brief with a response, I would say that it's possible to um, work with anger so we keep the energy and even the heat of anger while not the tendencies that are destructive. (coughs) Destructive qualities of anger are going to be linked with hatred, with polarization, with self-righteousness, with a number of other qualities, which are not hard to see in ourselves or others. And um, I actually learned a lot from one of my students when I was teaching graduate school, Robert Masters, 
he did a 450-page dissertation on anger, which is he's since has published as a book, a more a little more popular version. And the title of his book was "Until the Fire Is But Light." It's quite a beautiful title. He's a poet, actually. Until the fire is but light. But light, yeah. That, uh, okay, a little editing going on here. <laughs> uh, but the the upshot of it is, you know, that uh, first of all, um, I think it's like a lot of our strong emotions uh, could be like fear or like. Um, um, hmm, Maybe some kinds of um, um, even irritation or um, despair. That they um, first of all, the anger can carry a certain level of insight. That's pretty clear, and that's not always very clear in Buddhist tradition. There again, a lot of issues here. Maybe I should just give a whole talk on anger sometime, um, uh, because I think to to say it briefly, the words in the Asian languages don't translate very well into Western languages. They have different connotations. And in Western languages, anger can often be connected with justice. But that doesn't make any sense in the Asian languages. It's closer linked to hatred and polarization. But we know that anger can, can be linked with a sense of justice or uh, upholding boundaries and so forth. Uh, Aristotle called anger the moral emotion, actually. And so there can be the intelligence, but it's really to point to, to what extent is there reactivity? The reactivity is going to cause suffering. The reactivity is when something happens and I want to blame, push away, be negative towards the other. That's reactivity exactly in the framework that we were looking at before, the two arrows. It's no different. And yet, we... Um, the, the trick is, how do we work with anger so that we transform the reactivity but preserve the insight and the energy? And that's possible to do with mindfulness, I think, with loving-kindness, with other practices, maybe sometimes psychological work, that we can uh, take apart the anger. And if you look towards people like Martin Luther King, he said that the constructive transformation of anger is the key to a social movement, to a healthy social movement. And you can see and think of his voice. Was the energy of anger there? Certainly. Was the polarization there? No. He had done that, that kind of work, I believe. Yeah. And so that's the key. How to preserve the insight, transform the reactivity, so that the, we can use the insight and the energy not for the purposes of destruction or of lashing out or reacting, but for the purposes of compassionate action. That's, that's the easier said than done, but that's, that's the overall formula. And that, in that way, the heat or the energy of anger gets connected with wisdom. And so it's not, not either or, but it's a very interesting issue. So um, if we have the capacity to go to extraordinary mind, that also helps. Because you know, that that's a way of, you know, or, you know, we can say it in different ways. That would be also could be expressed as a, you know, as a vast love. If we have the capacity to hold everything in love or hold everything in awareness, we, it, it's, it gives um, the capacity not to take the temporary dualism as the ultimate standpoint. It's quite important. Yeah. Please. So is that not available in ordinary mind? that ordinary mind in your practice to yeah. really catching the reactivity. Yeah. It'll help to reduce our ego yeah. often our sense of yeah. self and other points. Yeah. Yeah, everything I was describing, I would that's ordinary mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, and again I'm the distinction between the two is somewhat artificial. It's maybe more of a continuum, right? But you know we use language. Mm-hmm. Language is set up with dualisms and divisions, and we have to remember that. 
Yeah. Just to finish up on that, this desire for this extraordinary desire, yeah. how do you approach that without getting trapped in ego, wanting something? So, great question. How do, <laughs> suppose, the, okay, every, who, who would like to sign up for Extraordinary Mind? Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? We have, uh, okay. Yes, we'll do this. Uh, no longer on a Donna basis. We'll have high fees. <laughs> no, no. Just, just joking. But you see where see the temptations of people. You know? um, but how many? How many would like extraordinary mind? Okay, as I've described it. Okay. Uh, huh? Yeah, actually, no payment. Um, and what about the the wanting? It's kind of like the wanting of not not wanting. Right? So we get into paradox, of course. The wanting of not wanting, or if I want to go to a place where I'm not, no longer wanting, does that subvert the whole enterprise? And the short answer is, it's okay. <laughs> exactly, as long as you're aware of it, that it's like saying, how does one move from delusion to wisdom without, to some extent, being caught in delusion. Well, it's impossible. But, but awareness is a... Um, awareness has the capability to win in the end. <laughs> I hadn't, hadn't used that language, but that's an interesting way to say it. You know? it's like, but it's true that it's kind of like you enter the game, so to speak, and the rules are rigged so that awareness wins. <laughs> no, I don't know if I'll use that one. <laughs> you could say it in different ways, but it's something like, yeah, basically, practice is self-correcting. That's another way to say it. Practice is self-correcting, meaning that we don't have to worry so much about our original motivation. I mean, it's okay. we want to see it and know what it is, but, it, but it's fine for motivation to be mixed because the practice has the capability of working with mixed motivation and, in a sense, purifying over time the motivation and the thoughts. Uh, so it's not really, we don't have to, in other words, we don't have to be pure to begin. If we, if we had to be pure to begin, nothing would happen. Right? So, yeah, but it's a great question and, and we want to look out for that because it can be distorting. But if we stay in the cultivation of awareness, the awareness will ultimately um, see that. Because it's, it's like the, when we, uh, Ashan Sameda, who sometimes teaches here, a uh, teacher in the Thai forest tradition, American, he says, uh, I take refuge in awareness. I take refuge in awareness. You know, probably maybe even more than I take refuge in this or that teaching. I take refuge in awareness. And I trust in the long-term transformative powers of awareness. And ha- has the power to work through uh, everything, actually. And so, and actually when we do that, there, there is a link between the ordinary, what I'm calling ordinary mind and the extraordinary mind. And, you know, that, that, that if we actually could tune in really carefully to ordinary awareness, we would touch the extraordinary awareness, even just for a moment. And so the practice is just really expanding it, expanding awareness, getting, having it be stabilized at the level of ordinary mind, and then the extraordinary mind begins to shine through. It's, it's um, from a point of overview, it's simple in that way, but it takes um, sustained attention and support to, to go in that direction. That's what our practice is about. Maybe, maybe I'll stop here and just invite us to, to sit. And maybe I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do more on this next time. Would you like some more, more extraordinary mind? Or have you had enough of that? I'm a little playful this morning, I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, would you like more yes. on this? Okay, because I think it's, I talked about it, but it's good actually also to 
point towards some ways of accessing it in the moment and having it be a kind of practice. Okay. Let's just sit quietly and let whatever may have been helpful from the morning be there for you. Any intentions coming out of the morning, let those be there with you. We finish by remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. Ultimately, we practice for all beings. All beings includes ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.